mini episode 1596 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1596. This is FDH managing partner Rick Morris here. And on the show where nothing is off topic, we have a really great topic here today. And it's a great pleasure of mine to have on somebody that I used to work for and uh, who I have since come to learn has become the author of a very, very unique book. And uh, this is a subject that uh, a lot of subjects within, I should say, that we're going to get to as far as all of the various people involved in this project in terms of chronicling it. Uh, the book is called Outstanding Black Woman of Yellowbusha County their stories, and their contributions to a Mississippi community. And the author, Dottie Chapman Reed, is somebody that I used to work for uh, in the business of uh, business reporting, uh, shall we say, and uh, doing some of that some years ago and uh, working for her. It's interesting because there was a note in there about somebody that had a teacher. There was a note in the book about this and that the teacher was somebody that you didn't want to disappoint. And I feel like the best bosses you have, uh, that's the case too. You don't want to disappoint them, and particularly the place where we work together. Sometimes if you got in trouble, if you made a big mistake, it could kind of dribble downhill to your boss. And uh, the, the right kind of bosses, the ones that you really like, they're the ones where you don't want, not only want, don't want to get yourself in trouble, you don't want to get them in trouble either, uh, as opposed to anybody who tries to rule through fear or intimidation or anything like that. And uh, I always liked working a lot for this individual. Uh, she was tremendous as a manager, and uh, to get to learn of this project was just such a joy to me. Uh, it comes from a series of columns in the North Mississippi Herald, and uh, subsequently now there is a Yalabusha oral history project at the University of Mississippi. We'll get into all that and much, much more with our guest, the author of this book, Dottie Chapman Reed, and it is a pleasure to have you on and to be able to talk about this book and uh, to be able to learn your insights on it. Well, thank you, Richard. I am flattered by that introduction. <laughs> well, I, I always did enjoy uh, working for you. You're a quality individual. You have a lot of character, and it's one of these things where, again, the nature of our jobs at the time, and particularly, uh, we can say, you know, being in different places geographically, it doesn't always kind of uh, allow for getting to know somebody that much on a personal basis, but it's one of these things you can kind of discern a lot of times, even when you're remote from somebody, uh, kind of that, uh, you know, it, it clearly like the character that they have and that you're, you're somebody that I would have taken a stab and it would have been like, okay, probably had parents a lot like mine as far as, you know, instilling character and everything like that and instilling decency and uh, really getting to see the meat on the bones in this book and learning more about you as well as the people you chronicled was really fascinating to me. Well, I am glad that you have enjoyed it, and I, too, enjoyed working with you, and it was, uh, you know, different from me being in the South and working with a group of people out of the Midwest, but I, I 
truly appreciate um, your work ethic. And every time I called, you were ready and available to do whatever I needed. So thank you for that. Thanks. And that's one of those things where, again, I feel like that's where we can kind of, you know, relate to one another really well. And like I said, I think clearly uh, there, are, there are sometimes there are other factors that come into life with people, but a lot of times it really does kind of come back to parenting and what gets instilled in them and uh, everything that you had to say in there about your experiences and everything that you said at length about your mom in there in particular, I'm guessing that she must have seemed like sort of the quintessential figure of, of the type of people that you were chronicling writ large. <laughs> I guess so in a sense, because, you know, I was always asking other people to write about uh, their mothers or the women in their lives that impacted them. And um, my um, homegirls, the Halls, Anita and Patricia said, well, listen, why don't you write about Miss Helen? And that was my mom. I said, okay, I will. So so that's how that came about. I did go ahead and share about her. And just recently, uh, someone mentioned that, you know, you should tell about how your mother uh, took you guys on those road trips. You know, she took us to the, uh, the zoo in Memphis, Tennessee. And she took us to the uh, penitentiary in Mississippi, Parchment. Um, she took us to Mount Bayou, which was an all-black town. So she was always trying to expose us. And most of the time, we were traveling on the back of a truck, of all things, you mm-hmm. know. But but those were trips that I will always remember because, you know, we were in, we grew up in the country and had very little exposure to the city. So, you know, going to Memphis and visiting a zoo and actually um passing by Elvis Presley's home and all that kind of stuff was it, it made an impression on me and uh, several other uh, young ladies and men in the community who who traveled with her even before I was old enough to go on those trips so so yeah she was she was one of the ones but there were many many uh, many women who poured into our lives in such a positive way. And, you know, I don't think that our community was much different from other communities, as you have said about uh, parents, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that, you know, we were raised with certain values, and uh, we had great examples to follow, and that, that helped. That helped us to develop into successful people, successful individuals, and good parents even now. Well, that's right, and I, I think to take that a step further, there's a situation that as I was developing that picture of your mom reading that, as you were just rattling off all these different things that, that she was involved with, of, of what a very organized person that she must have been, and the skills that she must have been like inherent to her as far as being able to use them, and that you know, you, you look at, uh, you know, you and I, what we've been able to use in the white-collar world as far as taking skills like that. It's one of those things where you just extrapolate, had the opportunities been better, what other people might have been able to do. I know in my own life, and this was not uh, anything having to do with social injustices, but pu- uh, purely economic, that my grandfather, uh, he was somebody that was class valedictorian, but it was time of the Depression, so, nope, you're not going to college, you're going to go whatever, and he just, he worked blue-collar jobs his entire life, and it was one of those things where, 
you know, you, 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 it makes you think about so many different people out there, and there are so many examples of this in your book that had circumstances been different, and maybe, maybe a lot of them would have liked to have done exactly what they were doing. Maybe some of them wouldn't have made any changes, but for the ones who would have wanted to make changes, clearly there would have been much better opportunities because they were qualified to do so many different things. Oh, yes, so true. That's one of the, the points that is often made in those stories is that, you know, had my mom and the other black women had the same rights and privileges of the white women in their community, they could have uh, excelled extraordinarily. You know, my mother only had like an eighth grade education and she worked as a maid, but she was very active in her church and in the community. She was very active in the NAACP and uh, voters registration as uh, as were several other women. So they had, you know, they had uh, tremendous skills, but, but uh, they were stifled in a way, you know, by the the laws in the state of Mississippi and, and the time period that they were living in. But um, all in all, they persevered in terms of helping to inspire us and build a positive community around us and enabling us to excel and, and you know, to go to college and get our degrees and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely, and this is one of these things where, in, in chronicling everything that you did in this book, such a vast uh, swath here, uh, different families, different groups of people. I mean, there are, there are some where, uh, I know like the Polk family was a real kind of connective thread through the book, but uh, a lot of different families and individuals in there. And so my question to you would be, just if, if you've had a chance to think about this in a marketing sense, because I know it's come from a collection of columns, in the North Mississippi Herald, but as far as how you would categorize the book, I mean, you know, if somebody says to me, puts me on the spot and says, well, how would you categorize it? I would probably just say uh, uh, stories about everyday heroes. So that's the first thing that pops into my head. Have you had a chance to think about it in that way of how you would categorize uh, the, the book as a whole? Well, uh, yeah, you know what? I just got back from uh, Jackson, Mississippi, where I was involved on a panel for the annual meeting of the Mississippi Historical Society. And we were at the, what they call the two museums, mm -hmm. the, uh, the Civil Rights Museum and the Mississippi History Museum. And I was on a panel with two other people who, uh, well, more than two, but one of the um, individuals that was uh, featured was Ann Moody, who grew up in Central Gill, Mississippi, and she wrote a book called Coming of Age in Mississippi. And um, I read that book when I was a freshman in college. And the other woman that was uh, represented was uh, Dr. Jane Ellen McAllister, who was the first black woman to get a PhD in education. So I purposely asked them to let me be second because I was speaking about the unheralded women, the, the women who did not get the public acclaim. Mm -hmm. And that worked out really well. <clears throat> so as I, so, you know, these women, or like I said earlier, just they were just everyday women, and you could probably find them in almost every community across the country. And uh, we need to hear more and to tell their stories and to talk about them more. So I would say that this book features the unheralded women. 
unheralded but yet outstanding in terms of the sacrifices that they made, the struggles that they made, and and some of them achieved some notoriety even uh, with that. So I, I guess that's how I would put it, how I would classify the book. Because it's gone beyond that, I'm, I'm not sure if I've mentioned that um, in January, well, with the work that the students did, it ended up being an oral history project entitled Black Families of Mississippi, mm-hmm. where, uh, where we interviewed, where the graduate students from the University of Mississippi interviewed black families. And those interviews are, uh, are available on a website, a repository website at the University of Mississippi. So it's men and women, and they tell such unbelievable stories. And then uh, in January 22, I restarted the column, and the focus is on men, because several men from my hometown and from the county would say, why don't you write about the men? And so we're up to, like, Article 56 now. I'm not doing articles on a monthly basis anymore, but I am still continuing to focus on men and women. So it's it's like a project, if if, if anything, the best answer. Because um, the other thing that I've done is with my collection and the presentations that I've given, I've titled it uh, from column to oral history project to book to collection. You know, in that all of my. Um, uh, memoirs and papers from the time that I was a student at the University of Mississippi through my uh, corporate career with the Wall Street Journal and McGraw-Hill, all of that information is now in a collection at the University of Mississippi in archives and collections. So it's hard for me to come up with just one word to describe sure. the book because it's, it's grown uh, way beyond my wildest imagination. As, as a black girl in uh, Water Valley, Mississippi, I never would imagine that anything about me would be worthy of being in a collection. And um, I entitled the collection um, Coming Full Circle, my journey through the University of Mississippi to many points uh, beyond and back. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long story, I guess I should say, but I'm, I'm humbled and grateful at this point. That is a great answer because, again, the more comprehensive you can be in describing a project, the better. So, yes, I think that is what you just said there can really let people get their arms around the essence of it. And this is one of these things here, too. I'm sure that this has kind of hit you particularly, uh, you know, once doing the project of the book, gathering up the columns, putting the additional material in there of just, again, your own role in the journey, your your eyes as you've seen them over the decades here, and going from your background at the University of Mississippi and then uh, subsequently uh, working there to everything else that you have done, and that uh, essentially, I guess, you would consider that to be at the outset sort of late in the game, so to speak, with Jim Crow, not gone altogether, but on a federal level, they were starting to wipe it out. And I know it took uh, longer to reach certain areas of the South, including Mississippi. So you start at that point in time, 
to wherever we are today, however you would categorize it, Mississippi in 2023. And I think a lot of social scientists will look at that and say that these are probably the most consequential decades in state history. And you've lived it and you've seen it, and this must give you an even more uh, informed perspective from having gone through the nitty-gritty of all these individual stories of these great people. Yes, indeed. I, I do I do believe so. And it just it just indicates that there's you know, we have so much more work to do, you know, so much more work to do in terms of telling our stories, teaching the history, uh, recognizing the many, many people who who have um, played a role in, in the development of this country and the South in particular. And um, what I've been focusing on most recently is just trying to um, show people how it's not that hard, you know, to um, to tell these stories and maybe duplicate uh, what we've what I've done or what the project has done uh, on some level, you know, to help our young people. That's the other focus is to educate our young people about the sacrifices and the roles that that our ancestors have played and and um, you know just everything from voting and marching and protesting or what have you and you mentioned earlier about the one family that was the the polk family p-o-l-k mm-hmm. where they did uh miss sally and polk was like a hundred years old and she was like the second article in my book and um i often talk about how it was so easy to do her story because she had just turned a hundred and her, her siblings and children had put together a wonderful program where she t- wrote in her own words. And she told a story about uh, not being able to go in the stores and how her father had to draw a picture of, of her feet to take into the store to buy her shoes. I mean, just, you know, stories like that, you know, should, should inspire other people to, to move forward and to do and to be more positive and, and to do more to make our society and our communities a better place all around. Um, and the first woman to register to vote is still is still living, Miss Lily Mae Caldwell. She turned 92 uh, last year in August, and she talked about how it was a road supervisor who encouraged her and her husband to go vote and how her husband had his pistol in his in his coat pocket when he went when they went to the courthouse to register and how he could not register because he could not read and she talked about the questions that they asked her and just yeah I don't know it's just there's so many stories that that uh we need to capture more of those kinds of stories and show appreciation to those people you know, who did that, who made those sacrifices. Absolutely. And, you know, in light of you mentioning earlier that uh, you have a subsequent project here based around the stories of black men from that period of time and moving forward, uh, perhaps ironically, but I felt like the most important story that was told in the entire book was one that was centered around a man, and that was uh, Dr. Hilliard Lackey, because, again, for any of us that didn't weren't there, didn't see the uh, atmosphere, didn't live it. Uh, we tend to think of, of things with Jim Crow and other experiences like that, general degradation, you know, drinking fountains, employment discrimination. We tend to think of it as quality of life things. For this th- man, 
it was life and death. I mean, I think you could literally say he died of injustice, yeah. being forced to recuperate from major surgery in a garage hospital, basically froze to death. I mean, this is a story, and it was told through the eyes of his daughter. But it was a thing where that might have been, I thought, the most important story of the entire book because you captured in a way that I haven't seen many other people capture in other forms of this, just the extremes that this could go to. And yes, there was degradation and there was this and whatever, but some of these things, as stupid and ridiculous as they were, caused people to die. And probably not enough people oh. think about that. Yes, yes. I, As a matter of fact, I've, I've featured him... Um Prior to, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, the things that I've done. I think uh, February 8th, I was at the Civil Rights Museum again in um, in Jackson. And it was just one of those lunchtime presentations. And I had the picture of Dr. Lackey. And I said, do you guys, anybody in the audience recognize this man? And, of course, several people did because he's a prominent professor at Jackson State University. And... Um, when I heard about his story, I was just, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, oh, and the fact that, that at uh, however, I'm not sure how old he was when he visited Water Valley, but just the fact that he, you know, finally had the courage to go and visit and see where this happened. And, and like you said, uh, that discrimination caused a life, you know. Uh, and then it's just I don't I don't know it's just I couldn't I couldn't resist wanting to share that story with everyone even though you know I try to stay away from some of the negative but but sure. it happened and we must report that so even this past weekend when I was in at the museum it was my first time looking at the lynchings and. I, I just, I said, oh, I hope I don't see Water Valley or Yellowbusha County listed. But, of course, I did at least two or three times. And and the things that they lynched the people for were ridiculous, yeah. you know. But anyway, yeah, Dr. Lackey's story was is very, very powerful. And I, I just, you know, I appreciate his being able to go back and, look at that and to deal with it in a positive way, you know, because at the end of the story, he says, you know, this is why I try to recruit valedictorians and salutatorians so we'll have more doctors and we'll have less discrimination. So, yeah, that was that was a great story. It was, and it was very important for you to put in because, as you say, there's the overt violence of lynchings and things like that, but this is a thing where it was more indirect, but no less life and death. Uh, he, he essentially died of injustice because of, you know, being forced to be out there because of the segregation and having to freeze to death in a garage. So, absolutely, yeah. and you, you bring great honor to the man's life uh, because this is somebody that should keep getting talked about and mentioned for everything that he accomplished here. So, it's a tremendous honor that you pay him by, by keeping his name out there and current and on people's tongues because it deserves to be. Right, right. I mean, they, his surgery was for ulcers, and they had his surgery in the hallway, right. in the hallway. And then to put him in a garage, oh, just just too sad. But, I mean, you know, and, and more of that happened than we know about. That's the other thing. Yep. You know, more of the situations happened that we, we never heard about. That's true. That's true. It had to be happening so many other places as well. Uh, but this is a thing where, again, uh, and as I go back to sort of the origins of this conversation here and talking about 
some of the things that uh, you know I could identify with with you uh, when I when I worked with you. And again, not knowing much about the you know the details of your life, nor you knowing as much about mine, but. I'm not surprised to find between us uh, spirituality being a connector, myself being a lifelong Roman Catholic, and uh, the ways that it can bind people and, and, and the ways that it can, your, your book is thick with references of, of uh, how it uh, helps instill character and everything like that, and it's one of those things that uh, we find that we uh, lean on the times when we need it most, and I can say that uh, with this uh, show, uh, one of our uh, contributors and a close personal friend of mine, uh, Dave Adams, uh, just uh, out of nowhere, almost three months ago, just collapsed and uh, was gone. And uh, it's a tough thing for us to deal with, uh, with some of us with the show, but writ large, the group of friends, very cl large, close-knit group of friends, and we're all wondering how we're going to get by, you know, with doing these different activities without him. But, you know, this book is, is a great reminder, again, of, of what binds us in so many ways and where I feel like I, I feel a connection with somebody just anytime I see that and anytime I see the kind of faith that they have uh, because that is something that we have in common. It's one of the things that grounds us through life and, and I think gives people that great kind of cosmic understanding uh, that people who haven't reached that point yet are still looking for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. I agree. Hmm. The book has just got so many great examples of it. I just, and you reference it so much and, uh, you know, so many of the different people where, you know, they might say, well, my mom instilled such great faith in me and everything. And I have to think that that was probably one of the cornerstones as far as being able to endure all of the harsh and bad things that were happening back then and all of the uh, unnecessary burdens that were put upon people. You know, if they didn't have the spirituality to get them through it, uh, there probably wouldn't have been so many great stories because that's probably, I'm guessing, in many instances, what gave them the courage to be able to succeed. Oh, uh, undoubtedly, yes, of course. I mean, that was a, a key role in in the life in the black community. I mean, the church was where you know where we all met on Sunday or Saturday afternoon in preparation for Sunday. You know, that's where we met our friends, our families, and. Uh, you know, we had a Sunday routine of maybe visiting aunts and uncles and all of that. That was just, that was the cornerstone. That was the cornerstone. I mean, we would not be where we are today without that kind of faith, especially in terms of black community, for sure. Oh, yes. Very, very understandable because uh, of, of everything that it does give you and, and the, uh, the courage and, and the knowledge and everything that that comes with that. And uh, again, in, in looking at this book, uh, Outstanding Black Women of Yalabusha County, Their Stories and Their Contributions to a Mississippi Community, compiled and edited by Dottie Chapman Reed. I have to ask you, just uh, as we're kind of coming full circle here in the conversation, if there's any aspects of this that we didn't get to yet that you feel like uh, are important to kind of get out there to people for their understanding. Wow. Well, you know, I guess um, maybe because maybe now, with the emphasis being on uh, Black history, and then now we're into women's history, I just think that um, we have got to find more ways to teach love versus hate, and I think education is a, is a key where that is concerned, and that. Um, you know, black history is a part of American history and vice versa. And um, 
I think the other thing I thought about as we were talking is that you might have noticed that I did include comments from uh, readers yes. from across the country. And one of the ones that I share most often is the um, a white gentleman who wrote back to me about Miss Ruby Hall and how he uh, was in her fifth grade class. And he talked about how she impacted his life in, in such a positive way. And he said something about how um, in my bio, I say that which that I'm trying to show how um, these women impacted, you know, black lives. And he said that it goes beyond that, that they, they impacted all lives and his in particular. So that's one, one thing that, I, that I, I appreciate. And I also appreciate the fact that um, Camille Daughtry, one of the white girls who grew up in my hometown, she did a couple articles in the book. And one of them was with her girlfriends who had, where they talked about the maids that they had. And they talked about, and, and it shows that in some instances, they really didn't know, even know their maids' last names. And um, the other part of it is that we, as black children, often did not know where our mothers were going, you know, after we went to school. But, you know, a lot of these, um, I mean, our mothers raised a lot of white children, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that um, that impacted their lives as well and maybe contributed to them being uh, more liberal, more lenient, more understanding. So it's all about love in, in, the, in, the, in the whole, in the, at the end of the game. It's all about, you know, it's not about color. It's about love. We have to, to focus on, on humanity and loving each other and getting along with each other and not suppressing our past, but sharing it and helping young people of today move forward with a positive attitude and, and maybe but then maybe it's not the young folks maybe it's the older folks who are still holding on to prejudices and and differences that that um that are impeding our progress as a people yeah i think that is the case and i think people who lived through that period of time and where it was their formative years and i think subsequent generations kind of look at kind of the oldest generations and some of the ones uh, that, you know, as you say, are still kind of clinging to that with a whole kind of what were they thinking kind of a thing. But it does seem like mm -hmm. there was kind of a societal kind of psychosis here. I mean, the, it, it seems impossibly foreign to think in, in 2023 that it was once the, the law of the land that we had two classes of citizens and everything like that. I mean, things are still persist in some ways, but I mean, the law of the land is quite one thing. And uh, to think that that was ever part of our history Again, uh, projects like this really kind of put meat on the bones of understanding it. Uh, of course, the uh, Yalabusha Oral History Project at the University of Mississippi, they, from the columns in the North Mississippi Herald, and the book, Outstanding Black Women of Yalabusha County, Their Stories and Contributions to a Mississippi Community, the author, Dottie Chapman Reed. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, I look forward to keeping up with you as uh, subsequent efforts with the, uh, the project continue on here. You have great stories that you're telling, and uh, I look forward to dipping into that further with you. Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity, and I should, you know, uh, at least give a mention of yes. the uh, 
Center for the Study of Southern Culture at the University of Mississippi is where the collaboration began, and we hope that that will continue. And I will say that um, my book, the articles, all of that is in the collection, and eventually it's all going to be digitized, and that means that it will be available you know, nationwide to the whole wide world to see the articles, to... Um, you know, to see what I did in corporate America and all of that. And uh, hopefully, you know, people will Google it and it will become a valuable tool for students and people uh, in, the, in the future, in the future. I hope that will be the case. Of course, there is a hub right now, blackwomenofyalabusha.com, that people can go to to learn more about the project as well. So people can check it out there. And uh, an amazing project uh, chronicling so many great stories that have been uh, under the radar for far too long and getting them out there. Uh, the author, Dottie Chapman Reed, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for FDH Lounge Mini, Episode 1596.